um, this evening. Uh, we're glad that you could be here with us. We're glad that you trusted us with your time and, and with your hearts and just getting to come here and worship God. Um, and we are, we are so um, thankful for that. Um, tonight we're, we're continuing. Uh, it's our fourth installment of our lesson for this semester called Recalibrate. It's a study of the minor prophets. And our hope is, is that, that while we go through these minor prophets and we look at these books uh, where people are talking, um, where, where the prophets are calling Israel to adjust their view of God because they've gotten some things wrong. Because over time in their relationship with God, they've fallen complacent, or they've looked at other nations, or, or they've looked at something else to try to figure out who God is and what He wants from them. And the prophets are calling them back and telling them who He really is, and what He really wants from them, and things like that. And so, so tonight we get ready to dive into uh, Hosea again for the second week in a row. But before we do that, uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we come before you, um, God, and we are, we are so thankful, God, to get to come together as your people and to praise your name. Um, God, is, it is exciting and empowering, um, Father, and we are thankful that we were created to worship you. Um, Father, we are thankful um, for your word, God, um, and I just pray that tonight as we get ready to dive into Hosea, we keep our, our uh, minds opened, God, and our hearts opened, um, and just allow you to work. We welcome your spirit into this place, God, and we allow ourselves to openly and honestly examine uh, where we are in our lives, God, uh, how we're relating to you, and whether or not it's in the right way. Father, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Um, so, uh, if you were with us last week, then, like I said, you already know, this is our second week in Hosea, um, and, and what we talk about tonight is really going to build off of last week. Um, so if you weren't here last week, you're kind of at a disadvantage, but that's okay, because the first thing we're going to do is catch you up. Um, so, somebody tell me the premise for the story Hosea, specifically the metaphor that kind of get, gets carried out in the book of Hosea. God commands Hosea to marry a... Uh promiscuous woman. Yes, yeah. So God commands Hosea to go marry this promiscuous woman, and he's planning on using this as a metaphor to say, in the way that Hosea loves this promiscuous woman, that's the same way that God is loving Israel. And so last night we kind of examined this relationship, and we examined um, how God uses this story to, to call Israel into a deeper relationship with him. And, and somebody in, in just one or two sentences sum up what the point was from last week. What, what did we learn in light of this relationship? Yeah, yeah. So God is a God who pursues us continually, even even when we're promiscuous, even when we chase after other gods, even when we, we look to things that, that we, we think will fulfill us more than God, and we hurt God, we push God to the side, we put God at a lower level than He should be. Even then, even in the midst of all that, we serve a God who loves us so much that He continually and constantly pursues us. And that's a God that's full of love and grace and mercy. And so last week we really, we really dove into the book of Hosea and we looked at it from, from God's point of view. We looked at, at, at what God is doing despite what Israel is doing. And this week we're going to kind of flip that. And instead of looking at, at what God's doing, we're going to look at what Israel's doing and why God is pursuing them despite the fact that they're running away. Um, and, and almost again in the same kind of reverse Last week, I think, was a really encouraging lesson. It's encouraging to know that, that there's nowhere we can go, there's nowhere we can run where God is not right behind us, pursuing us, and calling us back into a deeper relationship with Him. But this week, I think the, the lesson's a little bit more challenging. Um, it, it's less encouraging and a little bit more cha challenging. Um, and those of you who know me know that that's not necessarily my strong suit. Um, and so, as we get ready to dive into this passage, I just really ask that we keep an open mind and an open heart and ask, does this apply to me? Let this challenge you. Let this call you out and, and see whether or not um, this verse applies to you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend most of our time in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. 
The majority of our time is going to be spent there. And what we're going to do is we're going to read verses 1 through 9. And I'm just going to read them all in one chunk. And as I read, I just want you to keep your ears open for two things. I want you to listen for the effects of the problem that Israel's having and then what the problem itself is. So what's the problem itself and then what are the effects that the problem's having? Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. So here what we see is Hosea talking to the people of Israel. And he's telling them basically what Micah told us last week, last week, is that, that Israel's trying to run away from God and God's putting barrier and barrier and barrier in their way to try to keep them from, from getting what they want because God knows if they get what they want, it's going to be more destructive. And so Hosea is saying, if we just return to the Lord, he, he will heal us, he will restore us, he will love us. And then in verse 4, it picks back up and God's talking to Israel once more. We read this, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist. Like the early dew that disappears. Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than the burnt offerings. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of evildoers stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim. So do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem carrying out. Their wicked schemes. So I think that this passage has an interesting layout. Because it starts where it talks about um, Hosea is talking to the people of Israel and he's, he's unpacking that promise that God made to Israel that we talked about last week. And then it moves on and it talks about the, the heart of the problem that Israel's having and then it talks about the effects of that problem. And so what I want to do is I want to start at the end, which may seem kind of odd, and then work our way back towards the beginning of the chapter. So look with me, if you will, at, at verses 8. And nine, we read this: Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood. Now, to us, that doesn't mean hardly anything, because we're not Jewish people and we don't know what Gilead is or what the significance is. But, but Gilead was was a, the city where where Abraham was thought to have originally made a covenant with God in the Promised Land, where where God calls out to Abraham and He says, "I'm going to give you all these things. I'm going to I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a promised land. You'll have many descendants, and in, in return." You'll follow me. And through this covenantal relationship, we will bless the world and restore it back to what it's meant to be. See, through Abraham's story, through the, his descendants' story, through their testimony, they were supposed to call the world back into right relationship with God. And Gilead actually means the hill of testimony. And that's just, this is what it's referring to. And so what we read in verse 9 is that the testimony of the people of Israel... The ones who are supposed to be calling the world back into right relationship with God is that of violence and bloodshed. It's a city of evildoers. It's not people calling the world back into right relationship with God. It's the story of people who have turned away. It's, it's the example of human depravity now. So we see this interesting relationship. In verse 10, we see something similar. I've seen a horrible... Uh, sorry, verse 9, we see something different, uh, similar. Similar. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. Now, now Shechem, again, is this city in northern Israel where there's a temple. So Israel split in two, Judah's in the south, and they have the temple in Jerusalem. And then in, in the northern kingdom of Israel, they build a new temple in the city called Shechem. 
And so again, we see this interesting thing where these priests, the people who are supposed to be the go-between between the people of Israel and the people of God, they're the conduit between the people of Israel and the people of God. Instead of calling people into right relationship with God, it seems like they're, they're using their power somehow to hurt other people, whether that's literally killing them, or they're using their position to, to hurt people in other ways. These priests, these people who are supposed to be conduits, aren't living up to what they're supposed to be, and instead they're hurting other people. And so this is, this is the effects of the problem with Israel's heart. And throughout this whole book, we can see time after time that Israel's doing um, so many evil things. There's injustice all throughout the land. There's idolatry worship. Um, there's, there's all these things that, that, that God piles up all throughout the book of Hosea. And he says, this is what Israel's doing wrong. But here in chapter 6, uh, this, this chapter is especially important. Because here God points out what their problem is, why they're acting this way. The verse before, verse 8, reads this. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant, and they were unfaithful to me there. So this verse kind of hints that the verse right before it is the reason that they're breaking the covenant, right? This verse right before it is why they keep doing these things. Verse 6 reads this. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than bird offerings. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So, this verse is, is the key to understanding the whole rest of this passage. And I think it's the key to understanding the rest of the book of Hosea. We understood God's perspective, but if we really want to understand why the Israelites are acting in the way that they are, we have to understand verse 6. But here's the problem. is Verse 6 doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because, again, we're not Israelites, and we don't maybe get what's happening here. So, first thing I want to do is just define some terms. Um, who can tell me what a sacrifice is? What is a sacrifice? Something you give up for a specified purpose. Yeah, something you give up for a specified purpose. And then specifically for the Jews, what is, what is a sacrifice referring to in this context? Atonement for sins. Atonement for sins, yeah, exactly. So it's this, it's this idea you've got to give something up for something else, and it's this idea of atonement for sins, right? So they sacrifice an animal, and the basic principle is this, is that you kill something that takes the punishment in your place, right? So you, you take this spotless lamb and you sacrifice it, and somehow that pays the price for the sins that you committed, and in return, you gain the spotlessness of this lamb or, or goat or whatever animal you sacrifice. And if that sounds familiar, we'll come back to that, but just kind of bear that in the forefront of your mind. And then, what is a burnt offering? This one's a little bit more difficult in a way. What is, what is a burnt offering in this context? Yeah. Um, it's a religious act of all kinds of like, indications. It could be an act of praise, of thanks, um, or of atonement. It can be for all sorts of things. Yeah, and that's why this one's, this one's interesting. This one's super ambiguous. Um, but uh, basically, like James said, it's, it's used for all these different purposes. It's not just for forgiveness, like a traditional sacrifice would be, would be thought to be given for. But it's also like if something really good happens, you offer a burnt offering... And what you're doing there is you're acknowledging God and thanking Him for this, this blessing that you've received in your life, but you're also inviting Him into this moment to celebrate with you. If you were someone that you know is going through a hardship, you would offer a burnt offering, not only because you want God's strength and blessing and power to be on you, but also because you're inviting Him into this moment of struggle with you. If you're sharing tension in a relationship between somebody else and, and you resolve it, you go to offer a burnt offering. And it's because you're inviting God back into this right relationship. 
And so, you know, now that we've kind of defined the terms that we use in verse 6, let's read it again. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. But see, again, this verse, still, even still, at the face of it, I don't think it makes as much sense as we want it to. Because it's, it's talking about mercy and sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. But the problem is, is that there, it seems like it's saying, I want mercy and not sacrifices. But it seems like mercy is at the heart of sacrifices, right? I mean, the, the avenue of sacrificing and letting something else take the place for you, the fact that God gives them a way to appear before him clean and spotless, that's an act of mercy, and what God is saying, I want mercy, but not sacrifices. And the same thing with, with burnt offerings. He says, I want acknowledgement of God, but not burnt offerings. But it seems like burnt offerings are kind of this way to acknowledge God. And so it's this really interesting verse, and, and, and it doesn't make a whole ton of sense, I think, at first. It doesn't make as much sense as we want it to. Um, and, and the good news is that this, this direct verse gets quoted two more times in the Bible. And so we're going to skip and look at both of those. And hopefully that kind of enlightens um, what Hosea is trying to say to the Israelite people. So the first time that this verse gets quoted is in Matthew um, chapter 9, verse 13. Starting in verse 9, we read this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so I think this verse kind of enlightens what Hosea is talking about. Right? So you have this group of Pharisees. And these are the people who are like the, the best of the best at being Jewish. If you're a Jewish mom, you want your little kid to grow up to be a Pharisee. These are people who are very observant of the laws of the Torah. They, they do everything right. They're the, they're the religious leaders at this time. It, it, the, the Pharisee is the ideal Jew in the minds of the Israelites at this time. And so these guys, they, they, they're following Jesus around, and, and he, he goes up to this guy named Matthew, and he says, follow me. And later, Matthew invites him to his house, and Matthew invites all his friends over, and they're all sinners and tax collectors. And so Jesus is sitting there eating with them, and these Pharisees walk up, and they ask his disciples. So they say, you know, you, you claim this guy is so great. You, you claim that this guy uh, is, is so spiritual, but look who he's eating with. Look who he's hanging out with. And Jesus hears them, and he turns to him and he says, yeah, but I'm, I'm here for these people. I'm not here for the righteous. And then he says, and you would understand that if you understood Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And it's interesting that he uses this verse, right? Because the Pharisees, if they're the ideal Jews, if they're the best of the best, they would, they would definitely be up to date on their sacrifices. The Israelites were, were called to offer sacrifices after they had sinned or, or had wronged or, or had come into contact with unclean um, substances or things like that. And so there, there were times where God called his people to sacrifice. And so if these Pharisees are the best of the best, they would have been on top of that. If they had needed to offer a sacrifice, they would have offered it. And so by this kind of means of atonement, their sin would have been been, uh, you know, the, this animal would have paid the price for their sin, and they would have received the spotlessness and cleanliness of this animal, and they would stand upright before God. 
And what Jesus is saying is that you're, you're missing the point. Right? You've been given this means of, of sacrifice so you can appear before God blameless and holy. But the heart of that is mercy. And so instead of, instead of standing in right relationship with God and looking to these people who aren't, you look at them and judge them and say, well, these people aren't in right relationship with God. They haven't offered the sacrifices they need to. But Jesus says, you're missing the point. I don't want your sacrifices if you're not going to have mercy. He seems to say that, that what's really required is the mercy, the heart behind the act. The Pharisees are interested in the sacrifices because they want to stand in right relationship with God. But they're not so interested in the mercy. The next time that we kind of interact with this particular verse is uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. We read this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So again, we have this interaction. And again, it's with the Pharisees. And again, Jesus points them back to the same verse. If you had known what these words had meant, you would not have condemned the innocent. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And, and again, it's this, it's this super interesting relationship, right? Because I think if we look at the, the effects of the sin that both the Pharisees and the people of Israel in Hosea's time are struggling with, they look kind of different, right? The people in Hosea's time, they, they struggle with idol worship. And there's, there's all these different temples to pagan gods. They're, they're, they're clearly turning away. There's, there's all these different kinds of sacrifices to other, other gods and other temples. But here, the Pharisees don't seem to have any of that going on. And Jesus says, you have the same problem that the ancient Israelites had, but you're just expressing it in a different way. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And, and I think it's, it's in line a little bit more here as, as Jesus starts to talk about the law. And what the message seems to be is that what's important is the heart of the law. What he's saying is that the Pharisees are viewing the law, they're, they're viewing goodness as a means to the law, right? You, you are good so that you can live in accordance to the law. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you have it backwards. The law is a means to live in a good way. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want the heart behind the action, not just the action itself. We pick back up where we left off in verse 9, we read this. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Again, it's this interesting thing. Like, so, according to the law... 
you can't do work on the Sabbath. But if a sheep falls in the hole, this Pharisee is going to pick the sheep up out of the hole. But if a person is sick, if a person needs help, if a person fell in the hole, would you do the same thing for them? And so we begin to see like this, this kind of split attitude. They're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but would they work if it was like self, self-serving? Is it different if you're working to heal someone else, to help someone else? God wants the heart behind the law, and not just the law itself. The Sabbath, the whole, the whole purpose of the Sabbath, was that it created a space to acknowledge who God was. And in the creation story, there's seven days, and on the seventh day, God rests after all that He's created. And the Sabbath is, is a symbolic way of, of the Israelites resting with God. They rest with God and, and who He is and the power of what He's done and what He's created. Later on in the Exodus story, as, as they're wandering through the wilderness, God makes manna rain down for them so that they can collect it. And they collect just enough um, on, the, on the last two days of the week to have enough for, for the sixth day and the Sabbath, seventh day as well on the Sabbath. So they don't have to work. And so it's also this reminder that God's providing for them along the way. It's this, this reminder of, of God fulfilling his promises to the Israelites. And so the Sabbath is all about making a space where the Israelites can acknowledge who God is, what he's done, how he's been faithful, and that he's the maker and creator of this world. But what's interesting is the Pharisees miss the most powerful opportunity in the world to acknowledge God. The Son of God Himself, God in the flesh, is in front of them. And because they're too concerned with the law and not the heart of the law, they miss the opportunity to acknowledge God in the most powerful way possible. And we read as much. Verse 13 says this, Then He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So He stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. These Pharisees, the, the best of the best, the ones who were supposed to be the ideal Jew, who were on top of their game, who, who were the leaders in the religious community, they completely missed the point. Because they're too concerned with sacrifice and they don't care about mercy, because they're too concerned with burnt offerings and they're not interesting, interested in acknowledging God, they completely miss out on Jesus' ministry. Instead of being on the inside and working with Jesus to bring about the kingdom of God, they're on the outside. And not only that, they plot to kill the Messiah that had been promised to them for years and years and years. And we look at this passage and, and we think that the Pharisees are so stupid. How could they miss this? This is the promised Messiah. This is Jesus. And, and it's because they have this reverse order of, of they, they want sacrifice, but they don't care about mercy. Is that really what's causing them to stumble in this way? So we look at the Pharisees and we think they're so dumb. And I think there's one, one more story um, that really enlightens what it means, what this verse means. I desire mercy, but not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Um, I, I, was, I was raised in a church that's pretty legalistic. Um, they cared about the external actions and not about the heart behind the law. And so I grew up struggling with this my whole life. I was the kind of person that wanted the sacrifice but didn't really care about the mercy. I was at every Bible class. I, I went to every worship service. I was involved in my youth group. I did everything I could. I spoke at church from time to time. And that whole time, 
I thought I was in right relationship with God. But the whole time, my spiritual life was crumbling beneath me. And so my answer was, was to try to do more, to try to get more involved. And it didn't help. And I came to college. And I interacted with people who, who had this the right way around. They cared about mercy. They cared about acknowledging God. And I saw those people and it excited me and it, it reinterested me in, in, in reinvesting into Christianity after feeling so burnt out. And so I got involved in Devo, I got involved in, in discipleship groups, I got as involved as I could, I started going to community groups, I got really excited, my, my theology of God started to expand, I, I finally understood the concept of grace, and all these good things started to happen, and I experienced spirit, spiritual growth. But all throughout the time here, I've struggled with this. Am I going to community group because I should go to community group? Or am I going to community group because I actually care about being invested with a group of believers? I think last semester, too, I, I, I started my first semester as an intern last semester. And I started off really excited. And there were so many opportunities I could see God clearly moving around me and, and, and making ways and opening doors for how His kingdom was going to expand on campus. And then a couple of weeks in, I felt burnt out. I kept trying to, to find new ways and, and enter into to more Bible studies and, and, and I kept trying to, to, to pray more, read more, and, and all these things are good, but my heart behind it was wrong. I was excited to get invested on campus and to start spreading social justice. I wanted to, to convert people and I wanted to talk about Jesus and spread the powerful word of the truth, but my heart behind it was wrong. I was excited for me. I didn't care about the kingdom of God. And that's why I got burnt out. So then I flash forward to the Christmas break and I started reading the Minor Prophets and I read Hosea and it just crushes me. Because this is exactly what I've been struggling with. If, if you are sitting here tonight and you feel like, I'm so involved with church, I'm so involved at Devo, I go to community group, I'm in a discipleship group, and, and I just feel like I am spiritually dead inside. I want you to ask yourself tonight, how's your heart behind those actions? Just, just reflect on that for me. I have this, this tendency to, to, to think that the external action is the way to a right relationship with God. The external action is the path to righteousness. I come to Devo and I know all the songs. I come to Devo and I listen to Micah teach. But I forget about the meaning behind those things. I sing all the words to the songs and, and I enjoy the way they sound, and I think that we sound beautiful when we all sing together. And I can sing every word of all the songs and never once acknowledge God and all that. I'm praising the Creator and, and saying all these wonderful things, but I don't mean a word of it. I'm desiring the sacrifice and not the mercy. Or I can, I can listen to Micah's Devo and, and try to learn more about God, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. And in the middle of Devo, I hear Micah say something that starts to pull at the back of my mind, and I, I think to myself, I'm not living that way. And I start to think about that and process through that and, and how I can fix that. And then in the midst of that moment, I think, no, no, I've got to pay attention to Devo, because Devo is what's important. The Spirit's trying to work in my life and, and make room and, and create in me a change, and I shut it down because I've got to pay attention to Devo. Because what's important isn't what's happening in me and what the Spirit is doing to try to convict me to change. But instead what's important is that I learn more, that I get a more sound theology, 
Again, that's, that's important. That's good. But if you're not allowing that to drive you to change the way you live your life, it doesn't mean anything. Coming, coming to Devo and sitting here in these chairs, going to community group, being involved in a discipleship group, even getting invested in social justice on campus, that's not enough. If you, you, can, you can try to check all the boxes in the world, all the Christian boxes in the world. It'll never be enough. Back in Hosea 6, we read this. Verse 4, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. See, Israel has this problem, and I have the same problem. I want to express my love. I want to express my righteousness based on external actions, and I never want to fix anything inside. If I have a problem, the problem is I'm not involved enough. The solution is I've got to fix that. And I never once consider, how's my heart? When I, when I do something, when I get involved in something, what's my reasoning? I love God through my actions, and as soon as the action is over, I don't love Him anymore. My love is like the morning dew. It's gone after I'm done you know, with my sacrifices. And I have no love left for the mercy that was the meaning behind it. I think that um, a beautiful way some of this passage comes in Hosea 2, that really, really long passage that I had James read for me. Um, so it's this, it's this part that we read from last week where, where uh, Hosea and God are, are making this kind of comparison about an unfaithful wife who's wandered away and, and, and um, she's, she's, she's gotten into all these bad things. She's chasing after lovers. She's, she's cheating on her husband. And then we see God's response, and God's response is to faithfully run after her and call her. And this is what we read in verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will speak, I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. And I think that's my problem. I think that's, I think that's what I struggle with. Is that the, the way I view my relationship with God is that I've got to try to check as many Christian boxes as I can or God's not going to love me. I've got to try to check as many Christian boxes as possible or my spiritual life is going to crumble right out from underneath me. So I move from task to task to task and I try to do as many things as I can to prove that I'm a good Christian to myself and to others. And in the midst of that, I get caught up and and I'm doing the right thing, but it's because I want people to acknowledge that I'm doing good. Or that I'm involved in social justice on campus, but that's just because I want to appear as a just person. See, my problem is, I view God as a master, and I'm just a slave. He doesn't care about me. I've got to earn everything. I've got to, I've got to do everything that I can. I've got to check all of these boxes. I'm running around and trying to do as much as I can, and that is the fastest way to burn yourself out. Because what God wants from you, first and foremost, is your love. God wants you to look at him and call him a husband and not a master. 
What he wants is not, is not a, a relationship that's based on slavery and you feel like you, you have to, to bear the weight of all this and do it yourself. Instead, of what he wants you to do is acknowledge that you love him. And from that flows all these things that I'm so concerned of checking the boxes for. But now it's for all the right reasons. If I, if I learn to love God, I'm going to love justice. But not because I want to be perceived as just, but because that's what God wants. If I love God, I'm going to want to be here at Devo. But that's not because I'm supposed to be here at Devo, which is often the reason that I feel like I come, and probably some of you feel that way as well. But instead I'm going to come here because I'm excited to fellowship with fellow Christians. Or I'm excited to, to feel the Spirit move in our midst. I'm excited to praise God. To sing the words on the screen and mean them. When you're in a loving relationship with God, when you're not viewing what you're doing as, as I have to do this or I'm not going to have my salvation. Instead, when you view it as I love God and I know that He loves me and you are secure in that relationship, you do all the right things for all the right reasons. In just a second, we're going to talk about how you move into that kind of relationship. But first, I, I want to I ask you guys and reflect on this. Because I don't think I'm the only one that experiences this. In what way do you fall into this trap? What, what, do you, what sacrifices are you prioritizing above the mercy? What things do you do and not appreciate or understand the heart behind it? Sometimes um, at our house and other things that I've invested in over the long stretch, there are days I walk away that are that are frustrating, mm. that are that are painful. Yeah. Um, and I don't walk away with the heart of Christ. I walk away with my pride hurt, or mm. um, that uh, I'll just I'll just blow up and be stronger next time instead of feeling the pain for those kids um, or for the people I'm interacting with or. Um, Consulting in my brothers and, and sisters, and, and um, you know, being restored through through Christ. Mm. Um, I instead um, I do it out of obligation, um, and it becomes a very uh, shallow exercise. I show up and I go through the motions, and, and there's so many days when I do that. Yeah, yeah. It becomes an obligation, and it's just a shallow thing. We show up. I think that's easy to say a lot about. Uh, it's it's easy for a lot of what we do as Christians to turn into that. What else? So, I work at a pizza restaurant, and I don't like it, but <laughs> I'm a manager now, and that's the most stressful thing I've done in a while, uh, if ever, and I tell myself very frequently the reason I stay there is because I love the kids that work there, and right now there's not a lot of good managers there, uh, and I want to try and create an effective and a safe work environment for those kids as I can, and that's largely um, a lie. Um, because I, I need the money. I mean, I have to get, I have to get through school somehow. Um, and rather than actually accepting that and trying to address that, I continue to just show up to work, look after my own self-interest, and like pat myself on the back for looking out for these kids. Mm. And that's just not what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think it's funny too. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you got it, please. No. Okay. (laughs) Um, I'm going to echo a little bit about what's already been said because I definitely follow the checkbox mentality Mm. because I grew up in a uh, conservative church, very, very conservative church where I was like basically forced to go to church against my will. And that kind of makes me think that I have to do these things because they are things that I have to do, not necessarily because these are things that I want to do Mm. or things that I'm doing because I love God and I just, I keep reverting back to, I'm doing this because I have to. I'm doing this because this is a requirement, because it's an obligation. Yeah, yeah. Super easy to fall into that. It really, I, it really is. And at least when I, um, that comes to mind to me, any time that I am uh, putting, like, a concerted effort towards doing something that I know I ought to be doing, whether it's fighting sin or spending time in prayer or in mm-hmm. scripture, um, all the time that I find it being not because I'm desi- I desire God's will for my life, not because I desire to do right by God, but because I know these are things I should be doing. Um, so I-, I know I shouldn't be getting angry when people cut me off in traffic, or I know I should be spending time in, in scripture and in prayer because it's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. Yeah. Not because I want to have a better relationship with God and prayer and reading and the scripture will help grow that and anger damages that. Yeah. Um, it's not my priority. Yeah. Um, and it kind of it, it renders those things void um, mm. because it's not, I'm not pursuing God, I'm pursuing righteousness and it's for its own namesake. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, think, I think it's interesting, but it's very true. That a lot of times the question, how can I be a better Christian and how can I learn to love God more, are two very different questions in our mind. Like, we don't ever relate the two, but they should be the same. It's interesting. I want to echo the sentiment about anger, uh, especially on the road, because I get aggravated whenever I see some kid who's on their cell phone and not paying attention to their surroundings, but then I have to remember that sometimes I'm just not paying attention to the road either because I can fall into that trap myself. Yeah, absolutely. I have to remember that these are people that God made in his own image and that he loves them even though they don't pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and I think, yeah, that, uh, but I think you're exactly right, especially about people texting their phones, but also about like, uh, if, we, if we learn to love God and he loves everybody else, I mean, yeah, the more deeper we fall in love with God, the more deeper we should fall in love with everybody else too. And so we extend them grace and patience. That's good. Like this discussion definitely made me think of like First Corinthians 13 where it talks about if you don't have love and you, you have nothing. Yeah. And so um, I just try and think about that whenever I'm doing something. It's like if I'm not doing it as I'm not fine, I'm not even doing it. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a great question. I think a lot of times too... Um, we, we have this kind of view where we have to go to church, depending on how you're raised or, or just like uh, whether or not you're, if you're scared of hell and you feel like, I have to go to church or I'm going to go to hell. You know, it, it, there's these mentalities that we get where we feel like we have, to, we have to go and do this and it's not a choice. And I think that leaves us with this impression that like the Christian religion isn't one that inspires joy. It's not one that inspires happiness. It's not one that, that, that is a loving relationship, but it's based on fear and necessity. Um, and so I think, that's, I think that's good, is that it can rob us of these feelings, and instead if we do it with love, we realize the true blessing that, that, that a right relationship with God brings. Yeah. I'm sorry to comment twice, but it just occurred to me that like, the thing that these all have in common is that uh, they're not about something outside of us. 
the Pharisees' religion is about their being mm-hmm. clean. I, I like I, fundamentalist Christianity is about our salvation, not about what God wants for the world. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to focus on external, like acts of righteousness. It's hard to let Jesus inside of you and change what's going on in there. Um, I think that, that most of us can probably relate to this in one way or another. So what I would call you to is just to continue to kind of reflect on this. Ask yourself, what things are you doing and your heart's not behind it? And ask yourself how you can redeem that. So I think really quickly what I want to do to wrap up is that if, if this is a problem that we all struggle with so much, or at least most of us, and the answer is to fall in love with God, the question is then, how, how do we fall in love with God? And that question I don't think is as easy as we think it is a lot of the times. And it's okay to admit that we struggle with loving God sometimes. But really quickly, I want to look at the end of how Hosea's story ends. Hosea chapter 3 says this, The Lord said to me, Go show love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought, for her, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. This passage is the conclusion of, of Homer's story, but, but verse 1 in chapter 3 makes it very clear. It's also how the Lord loves us. Because he, he calls Homer to go love his wife in the same way that God loves the Israelites, and it's the same way that God still loves his people today. And so in light of that, when we read about, uh, about Hosea buying back Gomer, it's a very interesting payment method, right? I mean, so, so I brought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. So the common price for a slave around that time was about 30 silver. And so, so Hosea's forced to buy his wife back. But it's interesting because he, he pays for her half with silver and the other, way, other half he has to give away from his own livelihood. I think this kind of indicates that Hosea's probably not the richest guy. Because he can't just pay the whole amount in silver. Instead, he has to trade some away. I think what that shows us is that that Hosea buys back his wife, the person who who he already loved, who he already was supposed to have an intimate relationship with. She blew it. She walked away. And he went and found her and paid 15 in silver. And the other half he paid from his own livelihood. He paid till it hurt. And it was to get back in a right relationship with her. And we can say the same thing about God, right? He sent his own son to come down, to to live a perfect life, to, to be this form of atonement where we can stand before God just and blameless and holy. And he paid till it hurt. And the result of that, again, and I think it just... It really hits home is this. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones. We, know, we now have no more need for sacrifice 
or sacred stones because we have an intimate Savior who if we learn to love Him and love God will come into our heart and change us and pay the price that we can't without effort or household gods. Our, our, our righteousness is no longer external. But instead it's about learning to love Jesus and love God. And, and this is the kind of God I think that we can learn to fall in love with. When you hear stories like this and you think about what God has done for you, the things that He's promised to do for you, and what He's doing in your life right now, I think that's a God that's easy to fall in love with. And so I would just ask that we, we focus on that. We, we learn and practice loving our God. And let that change the rest of our lives. Let's stand and sing.